appreciation to Dr. John Akers and Donald Mitchell and Dr. Spence and Dr. John Ellington for preaching while I was away, and Dr. Larry Wilson and uh, Andy Andrews and uh, Dr. Norton Denny and many others who helped with presiding and doing other things in the church, and especially to Bert Gartrell for the work in the afternoon prayer meeting. This morning we have a very wonderful um, experience. Dr. Billy Graham is here, and uh, he has been out of the country since April. He has been preaching in a tremendous crusade that occurred in Great Britain, where literally millions of people have been reached with the gospel message, and tens of thousands responded in a remarkable revival in that country. He went to Korea, where he spoke to almost a million people there. And then he has gone into Russia and has got out of Russia and is back here in Montreat. And uh, I want to ask you, Billy, if you will, please, to come up at this time and tell us about your trip. In fact, if you want to preach, we'll even let you do that. <laughs> I left my Greek Orthodox censors and <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Calvin. I know that most of you want to hear him after all of this long time with so many other preachers because there's nobody that can preach quite like Calvin. I always bring my notes with me and make notes on his sermons and then I go preach them somewhere else. <laughs> and uh, I came this morning expecting the same thing and did not know that I would be called upon until a minute ago. And I feel like the minister that uh, dreamed he was preaching and he woke up and he was. Uh, because uh, I have had an eight-hour time difference to get here. And uh, we arrived uh, this early in the week uh, back to the United States. And as Calvin said, I've been gone since April the 12th from the United States and from Montreat. And uh, have missed it, have heard a great deal about what is going on here uh, from news reports or telephone calls and so forth and knew about Calvin's sickness and every time we gathered together for a prayer meeting uh, we would pray for Calvin and so he was prayed for even in Siberia as we were there just a few weeks ago a few days ago as a matter of fact but um, we wrestled a great deal about whether to go to the Soviet Union or not and uh, I don't know that I'd ever had a more agonizing situation because we'd been invited by the Orthodox Church that's celebrating a thousand years of history in four years, by the Baptist uh, Church, which uh, celebrated while we were there the hundredth anniversary of the Baptist Church in the Soviet Union. They're the second largest denomination. And um, whether we should go or not, we wrestled and said no and yes, we didn't feel we had the physical strength to go after all those meetings in England and Korea and other places. And yet uh, the Lord wouldn't let our hearts rest. And one day the Lord turned me to this passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul said, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach not, I have a reward, if not voluntarily. And though he said, I'm free to belong to all men, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible to Christ. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, 
so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all men, so that by all means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. And if you were reading the Greek text, you'd find that it was even stronger than it is in this version that I'm reading. That Paul became all things. He never compromised the gospel, but he did everything he possibly could by way of method to reach people to Christ. And it's very interesting because today we'll hear maybe about Priscilla and Aquila who were persecuted in Rome. But you never find one statement by any of the apostles or the Lord himself against Rome. And that always puzzled me. Why did they not talk against Rome when it was a terrible uh, uh, government and persecuted the believers? But they never said a word about Rome. They just went wherever they could preaching the gospel. They were thrown in jail, of course, and they were persecuted, of course. But they preached the gospel wherever they could. And God said to me, you're going to go to the Soviet Union and declare the gospel. And so we went. And uh, there were restrictions. The restrictions were where we preached. We had to preach in churches or cathedrals. We couldn't go outside. We couldn't go in stadiums. We couldn't go on the street corner. But we could. But inside, we could preach anything God laid upon our hearts. No one ever suggested one time as to what we say or how we should say it or anything. They said, well, a lot of KGB agents are here. I said, thank the Lord. They're the ones we're trying to reach. And, uh, but wherever we went, we were treated with great hospitality by all the people, and we saw some of the greatest Christians I think we've ever known. People that suffer for Christ. People that pay a price for their faith in Christ. And to see those churches filled with those kind of people, and in some places, young people, the majority of the people at a Baptist church in Siberia were young people. We have it all on film. And Carl Maiden, who is probably the greatest photographer in the United States for Time magazine and for Life magazine for many years, was with us. And he said, I've tried 25 years to get into Siberia, and this is the first time I've been able to go. And he took hundreds of pictures. For the first time, the Orthodox Church allowed motion pictures and still pictures to be taken of their liturgy. And if you think services at Montreat Presbyterian Church get long sometimes, the liturgy of the Orthodox Church is three hours long, and you stand. And uh, it's a gorgeous liturgy, and if you have it in English, you'll find that it's really fundamentalist in its theology. And one of the theologians, one of the great theologians of the country, went with me everywhere, and he spoke fairly good English. And you know what he said the greatest concern of the theologians in the Orthodox theological schools are? that Americans are now putting out a Greek New Testament that takes away from the deity of Jesus Christ at each point. And he said, this is our greatest concern. We do not want this type of heresy in our church because the heart of the gospel is the deity of Christ, his death on the cross, and the bodily resurrection. And I thought to myself, here's an orthodox theologian here in the middle of Russia telling me that, that they don't want our heresies in theology. But it's interesting because we didn't have to talk politics, but 
I got in debates and discussions with atheistic scientists, with anthropologists, with doctors, in the different places and the places that we went. And then I had the opportunity to go to the highest places in the Soviet Union, in the Kremlin, to the Politburo, to one member of the Politburo. They only have 11, of which Mr. Gromyko is one. But this man uh, gave to me uh, practically what Mr. Gromyko said to Mr. Reagan. And then I was able to tell him why I was a Christian, how I became a Christian, and what I preach. And of course, I started with Genesis and went right through. And he listened very intently. And he was very interested. And I was amazed at the interest that he and others like him that we had opportunity to talk to. And I presented every problem to them, including Mr. Sokharov, including uh, the persecution of Christians. And all of these things I presented to them. And uh, the treatment of Jews. And the lack of immigration of Jews. But you have to do it privately. If you do it in front of the press, or if you go out and announce it to the press, you get nowhere. But maybe in some of these private encounters, we can make it clear to them. And God, I believe, used it. And then I believe that the greatest thing, though, that the Lord used in this trip, and it was said by the patriarch, the, the Pope of the Orthodox Church, as I preached my last sermon, I preached on you must be born again, and he sat over here by my right, and the Metropolitan of Moscow sat to my left, and they put pulpits in front of the, ch in front of the chancel, and I preached the gospel on you must be born again. When I'd finished, I thought I'd probably offended the hierarchy by being so straight. And when I sat down, the patriarch stood up and he said, this is the kind of message and the kind of preaching we need in the Orthodox churches of the Soviet Union. And he said, right now, I want to publicly invite Mr. Graham to come back as soon as he can. And this theologian traveling with me, he said, the greatest impact that you have made while you're here is to teach us how to communicate the gospel through preaching. Because in the liturgies, they feel that they communicate the gospel enough. But they saw people responding by the hundreds in their faces, sometimes by uplifted hands, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I thank you for your prayers, and I come back believing that God did something because we're, scat we're scatterers of seed. That's what Jesus said. We're communicators of the gospel. We don't know where it's going to fall. We don't know whose heart it's going to light in. But we know that the Holy Spirit uses his word. And we believe that we have left the word of God among those people in those various cities that we went to and the various churches that we spoke in. It was my privilege to speak over 52 times uh, during that time in the Soviet Union. And some of them was just reception talks that I gave or other times or regular sermons. But I do appreciate your love and your prayers, which we always feel that we have from this congregation in Montreat. Thank you, Calvin. I could go on and preach, but I won't. <laughs> I wish you would lead us in prayer for our two countries. Let's stand, please, and I want to ask Billy if he will pray for the relationship between our two countries. Our Father and our God, we believe that we stand at an extremely dangerous moment in history. More dangerous than anybody in this congregation or the one in the pulpit could ever understand. People with weapons that by one decision could destroy us all in a matter of hours. And we do not know the answer. We do not know how far to go 
in armament and disarmament. We know that leaders of our two countries have met this past week without apparent too much success, and yet at least they're talking, and we thank thee for that. But Lord, this is all in your hands. You have a plan for the human race as outlined in Scripture. And we know that your plan is not to allow man to destroy himself totally. But your plan is that there's going to be a future and the kingdom of God is going to prevail. And your great prayer, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is going to be answered. Someday your kingdom will reign and you will be king of kings and lord of lords and we will be a part of that kingdom. That is the great hope that beats within our breast. In the meantime, we pray for wisdom on the part of world leaders on all sides. For we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have a Bible, it might be of some benefit to you to turn to the 18th chapter of the book of Acts. Uh, I will comment on a few of these passages and uh, will refer it to your study. I've left a little study guide from Scripture Union uh, in the bulletin which will be helpful to you. This is Acts chapter 18. Notice that it begins by saying, After these things he, that is Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. Let me explain something that's very important. Paul had preached in every single strategic place that he could get into. The most important place on the planet Earth intellectually would be the city of Athens. If you could understand what it would mean to have Harvard and Cambridge and Oxford and Stanford and all of the learning centers put together in one particular place, this will give you just a vague idea of the incredible importance of the city of Athens. We have never come close to the wisdom that was expressed by Aristotle and Socrates and Plato and the great people that lived and taught and spoke there as far as this world's wisdom is concerned. Now I say that for this reason. If the world, by its wisdom, could have known God, every person in Athens would have been saved. But the world cannot, by its wisdom and philosophy, know God. God must reveal himself to us. And that's what he has done in his son, Jesus Christ. And apart from him and away from him, there is no salvation. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so Paul, with all of the learning that he had from sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, the foremost teacher of his day, and all of the distinguished academic things that had come Paul's way, when he came into the city of Athens, the thing that stirred him most when he saw the gold and silver and marble of gods made with hands, was that people could be so stupid as to think that a God made with hands had created things. 
And so he preached in Athens. We read that at the conclusion of his great address in Athens at Mars Hill, and I am not like some preachers who say that Paul failed at Mars Hill. You do not fail when you bear a testimony to Jesus and the resurrection. And he did not fail at Mars Hill. Our job is to proclaim the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes that gospel effective to salvation to those who believe. And so at Mars Hill, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We will hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom was also Dionysius the Areopagite. That uh, was a designation of a person who would have been the secretary to that learned assembly of people who would hear these debates. So he was converted. And a woman named Damaris, the tradition for which I don't know uh, where, the, where the source comes from or the authority comes from, is that Damaris was a woman of the street. And she evidently becomes a Christian and others with them. So there were people who came to Christ there. There was no great revival in the sense that we know and speak of it sometimes, but these did come to the Lord. After these things, he left Athens and he went to Corinth. Corinth was 40 miles away. I have been to Corinth. I wish I could tell you that I remembered everything about the ruins, but all I remember was the terrible bus ride <laughs> that I had 25 years ago in getting there. But there are some things worth remembering about Corinth that tried to rival Athens in learning. And of course we know what Corinthian pillars are in architecture. There are two or three of them in Montreat where you see those uh, Corinthian pillars. So they had some uh, distinctions in architecture. They had some distinctions in learning. And they wanted to compete with Athens. Uh, but it was also a notoriously wicked city. Many of you are Bible scholars enough to know something about this place. It was situated on a very narrow stretch of land that separated two seas. You had to sail all the way around to get from one to the other, but if you could cross that little five-mile stretch of land, you could get from one sea to the other and avoid that dangerous uh, and expensive trip around the peninsula. And so in this case... Corinth was strategically located, and Paul had an eye for strategy. That's why he went to Mars Hill, that's why he goes to Ephesus, that's why he goes to Athens, that's why he will go to Rome. And so, after these things, he left Athens, he goes to Corinth, knowing that this crossroads, where there would be people, sailors, from all over the Mediterranean world, uh, that they could bootleg the gospel into places everywhere. And so he wants to get them with the gospel. It was a city at this time of about 750,000 people. And as far as we know, when Paul went there, there was not one Christian in that city. It was notorious as the place where there was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. This, we get the word aphrodisiac 
from a, a word that has to do with the promotion of sexual prowess through medications or uh, through some chemistry. Well, this place was notoriously wicked. It was sin city. We think sometimes that the exaggerated emphasis on sex, and it certainly is in the United States, is appalling to us all. We see people with an orientation toward molesting children. Uh, we see the prolification of so many different things that are abnormal and abhorrent and evil. And we think, how could you possibly be a Christian in a day like this or in a dormitory where I have to live or among certain people where I work? Well, the gospel comes to a place far more devastating in its evil than anything really we've seen. And here is where God will sow the seeds of the gospel through his servant Paul. And look how providence comes into the play. Pro video. God can see before. Claudius, in 49 AD, the emperor at Rome had signed a decree. The Jews in Rome had been rioting. Some of them had been talking about one Christus, which probably is a reference to Jesus Christ. Claudius is anti-Semitic and he's fed up with the Jews and their superstition and their religion and their writing and he signs a decree that they have to get out of Rome. Well, he may sign his decree, but God is working his purposes out even in that. Because two of the people who leave are a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, he came to them. Now look, notice this, because he was of the same trade as Paul. Uh, the Jews had a saying, the rabbis, that if you did not teach your son a trade or a craft, you taught him to be a thief. They glorified learning. But they also wanted with learning for a person to be able to do something with his hands. And uh, so God uses this. For Paul will go in amongst the people who make tents and who work with leather in a kind of upholstery business. And uh, there he meets Priscilla and Aquila. Evidently Christians whom he is able to discuss the things about Christ with more, and he stays with them, and they were working, for by their trade they were tent makers. Now one reason that I mention that, in the providence of God you see things come together. I've been reading this big thick book on Solzhenitsyn, the new biography. And in 1956, after Stalin, Nikita Khrushchev made a speech in which he denounced what was called the personality cult in Russia. The horrors of the process under which Stalin had had so many churches destroyed, so many people put in prison, uh, that it was just prison camp after prison camp. And of course Solzhenitsyn had been arrested in 1945 and had been placed in prison. Well, when Khrushchev made his speech in 1956, 
there began to be a little measure of freedom that crept in. There was a person by the name of Vordovsky who was a member of the 21-member proceeding. Vordovsky had to do with literature and the promotion of writing. And so, in order to show the excesses of Stalin, they read, he was given one day a manuscript, Vordovsky, a manuscript, a manuscript that just had S-C-H-U period, and then a number after it. Actually, the manuscript was a day in the life of Ivan Donisevich, which is an autobiographical story of Solzhenitsyn himself. It shows what happened in a slave labor camp in one day from the time a man wakes up in the morning in the cold Siberian waste until that night when the light is put out. Just one day, the stark simplicity of life in one day. Mordovsky had been given this manuscript by a secretary who had read it and was so spellbound with the artistry of it that she she had to get it into important hands. She carefully had it typed because it had been skimpily typed in the most economical way right out to the end of the margin, single spaced on the back and the front. She retyped it beautifully, hoping that she could get the member of the Presidium charged with literature to read it. She carefully placed it in a strategic place. You see, God was using all of that. Bordovsky had a habit of taking certain manuscripts home, but he wanted other people to have read them first. So that he didn't waste his time. And he didn't have to fool with junk. But he went home that night with two manuscripts. He got in his bed, and as his custom was, he began to read, and as he read A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, he came alive. He got out of bed, he went to his closet and dressed formally. He sat down in his chair and he read through a day in the life of Ivan Denisovich a second time. At five o'clock in the morning he finished. He couldn't wait till the intellectuals would begin to wake up so that he could call them on the phone and tell them that he had discovered an incredible literary genius. And then he had the task of going to where Khrushchev in 1962, that he is now, was on vacation, and this is the summer that the Cuban Missile Crisis is beginning to ripen, and he goes there to the Crimea where Khrushchev is on vacation, and he reads to him. Now, what attracts Khrushchev? Ivan Denisovich is a bricklayer. Khrushchev in his youth had been, as a peasant, a bricklayer. When the description of the martyr that is made and the fitting of the bricks together comes, Khrushchev listens. And his old peasant feelings are stirred. And he gave the okay. He was the one that went before the 21-member committee and made the motion that this manuscript be allowed to be printed in Isvestia. Now later there's a recall and of course Solzhenitsyn is expelled from Russia. But uh, this was the beginning of it. Well that man became 
a Christian through experiences in a prison camp where he was exposed to believers who suffered for their faith, and also because he went through cancer and was operated on in a prison hospital. But you see, God works his purposes out. Who on earth would have ever thought that a man in a prison, writing tiny little handwriting to save the space, having to secret his notes and hide them, would have ever been able to get that into the hands of Khrushchev, typed up, and then later to be approved by the Presidium. But you see, God works his purposes out. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. What goes on in Peking and what goes on in Moscow and what goes on in Washington? Behind all of this, God is working. And he may be working through a tent maker named Aquila and his wife Priscilla and then this little hunchback, crooked-nosed Jew by the name of Paul whose heart is so full of Jesus Christ. And so what do they do? He goes to the synagogue every Sabbath. He makes tents all week. When Friday evening comes and Sabbath is about to come, he goes to the synagogue where there will be some knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. He seeks to persuade both Jews and Greeks about faith in Jesus Christ. Then when Silas and Timothy come down, this is in verse 5 from Macedonia, Paul begins to devote himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Isn't that amazing? He works, but then when it's made possible for him to be freed up from making tents so that he can teach all the time, he teaches. And when the, the Jews resisted and blasphemed Paul, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From now on I go to the Gentiles. There comes a time when people won't listen. And when you have to call it quits, as far as the witness is concerned. And so he departed from there, and he went to the house of a certain man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue, wasn't very tactful. <laughs> I'm sure that somebody wrote him a letter from something that said you'd gone right next door to the synagogue and started singing uh, something about the blood of Jesus. But he did. He witnessed right there. And what happened? The people from the synagogue began to leave and come next door. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and were baptized. And now we come to verse 9. And this is the key thing that I wanted to get to you today. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer. You know, when Paul came there, it was in weakness and in trembling. He says that in the first and second chapters of 1 Corinthians. But God speaks to him in a vision and says, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, 
with Billy Graham in Siberia, with David Livingston in Africa. Notice the promise of his presence. One day two disconsolate disciples of Jesus walked on the road to Emmaus with their hopes destroyed, believing that their Savior was dead. talking of the scriptures and how they had thought he had fulfilled them. When Jesus himself came near and walked with them, but their eyes were holding that they did not know that it was Jesus. And he asked them, What is it that you're talking about while you walk and are so sad? And then they turned to him and they said, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? who does not know what happened here? Now imagine asking him that question about the crucifixion. And he said, what things? And then they told him about Jesus of Nazareth. And then he opened their hearts to the scriptures. And then later they said, our hearts burned within us while we walked with him in the way. The promise of his presence, that he is with us. For I am with you, says the Lord to Paul in this vision. No man will attack you in order to harm you. They did attack him, but they didn't harm him. For I have many people in this city. And then, of course, he stays there for a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Our time is gone. But I wanted to show this from this. So that you might know that whether you're in a dormitory where it's hard to stand up for Jesus Christ, that he is there with you. It couldn't have been worse than Corinth. That you can buddy up with someone else who shares your values and you can keep a witness going for Christ. That you can live for him and know that his presence is there. It's the power of his presence. And one reason this morning that I wanted to name as many as I could recall of the people who helped out while I was sick. The whole 16th chapter of Romans is a list of 38 names of people that helped Paul. Priscilla and Aquila, these two friends that he makes, will later go into Ephesus and there they will start a little group of believers. And at the end of 1 Corinthians, you will be able to read that Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned again in the church that is in thy house. So you see, it's not just a matter of the professional clergy. It's a person who is a dentist, a person who works at the Chamber of, the, of Commerce, a person who is a gardener, a person who is a cook, no matter who you are or where you are. If you are born again, you are a witness for Jesus Christ. You are to bear a testimony for him to others. I think we will dispense with the last hymn, and I'll ask you to stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for your great mercy wherewith you have loved us and called us unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Make any person here this morning who has not yet experienced a true personal relationship to you to know at this moment that they can. They can give as much of their own heart as they know how to give to as much of Jesus as they understand and ask for a real transaction to take place today whereby Jesus becomes Lord. And blessed Holy Spirit, we pray that you will confirm that transaction in those hearts who seek thee now. And Lord, we thank you for people small and great who come to know you, some through circumstances of pain and suffering, some through deprivation of freedom, some in all sorts and conditions in life. But make us to know the wonder and the mystery of the gospel and that we have a share in this so that we may be faithful to live out our faith day by day walking for you. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore.